This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 10th, 2022, and this is episode 276. I'm Strat Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. A jam-packed show today. We have a new BC Liberal leader. We have a throne speech that no one even remembers, and we won't talk about much. And Ottawa is still shut down as all the political parties struggle to figure out what to do about it. But first, congratulations, BC. We now have 5 million potential listeners. Yeah, so uh, census data came out uh, this week, and BC's uh, official population is now 5,879, so we're, we've crossed the uh, 5 million mark. But shame on you, Port Moody, for declining in population. Do better. But thanks to everyone who contributes to this podcast every month or annually to keep our show going. Maybe tell a friend, tell one of those other 5 million people in British Columbia to start listening to us or to become a supporter at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start quickly with our roundup of the greatest BC premier bracket. Last week, we put the conservative and SoCred top premiers against each other. And unsurprisingly to me, WAC Bennett took it 20 to Simon Fraser Tolmy's three votes. I saw that one coming. You've, you know, governed the province for several decades. You leave a mark. This week, we have the best liberal candidates going up against each other. We have the last of the old liberals and the first of the new liberals, Boss Johnson versus Gordon Campbell. Johnson was the 24th premier from 1947 to 52. He did a bunch of things that were popular in the day, like building highways, railways, and hydroelectric dams, and dikes in the Fraser Valley. He won a landslide victory in 49, but in 1951, the conservative coalition he was in with withdrew their support. And after that, the SoCreds won. He also brought in compulsory health insurance and a 3% PST. So that was Boss Johnson. On the other side is Gordon Campbell, the first of the new liberal premiers, the 34th one from 2001 to 2011. He won the largest majority of seats in BC history, 77 of 79 in 2000. It would win mandates again in 2005 and 2009. He cut taxes, he cut spending, he deregulated, he sold off government assets, including the fast ferries and BC rails. Possibly more popularly, he brought in the carbon tax and brought the 2010 Winter Olympics to BC. He was big. Oh, so the the candle line was built under his time in office. As part of the Winter Olympics projects. He was a big fan of referendums. We had them on treaty rights and electoral reform twice. He didn't really want one on HST, but we got one, and that would result in the scandal that brought him down among a few other scandals that happened in his time. Gordon Campbell versus Boss Johnson. Vote at Politicos Pod. I don't actually know which way this one will go because I think Campbell elicits quite a polarized reaction. Yeah, that that is my slight concern about the the bracket is that we're basically going to get someone from the the recent last couple premiers into the top spot and it's basically just going to be a do you or do you not like the recent politics of the province rather than the laundry view on this? I did try to look for negatives of Boss Johnson's time, 
the strongest I can say is he didn't lead for a long time. He His government fell after five years, and then his party wouldn't win again for decades. I couldn't, I don't, he was of the era where we did pass a lot of racist laws and started to maybe turn them around in the post-war era, but I didn't find them quickly. Go listen to some of our past episodes for more on either of these premiers and vote at Politicos Pod. But let's get into the first segment. We have so much to talk about today. The Falcon has landed. First up, the BC Liberal leadership race is over. We decided not to do a emergency special edition podcast on Saturday night, partially because I was tired <laughs> with a newborn, but also because it was a boring result. Yeah, we didn't have that real nail biter who was going to finish uh, in first place. What? Were the ranked ballots going to change things? Because Kevin Falcon pulled in 47% of the points on the first round, and then it was really just a case of watching to see how many rounds it would take for him to take over that last 3%. And yeah, the whole thing was a little anticlimactic. We knew it was going to be at least two rounds just because mathematically Stan Sipos and Renee Merrifield didn't have enough points to send his way to actually put him over the top. I think if uh, but all it ended of up- Merrifield's votes had gone to him, it might have worked out. But she had still ex- a couple short. She had three percent of the votes. But yeah. Point being she had endorsed Ross and Lee as alternates, so it was very unlikely that all her votes were gonna go to Falcon. But yeah, it took five rounds. Five excruciating rounds, but not as excruciating as the last leadership race where they made us wait half an hour between results. Yeah, that was a little irritating to to wait through the last one. Thankfully, this time they were a little quicker on it. I guess without the big event going on, they didn't really feel the need to draw it out any longer. Notably, last time they actually had a big in-person event when they did the announcement last time. So yeah, general positions on the first round ballot. We won't go through them all, but particularly because nobody actually shifted places at all during the uh, subsequent runoffs. Uh, so starting from the bottom was Stan Sipos at 1.2%. I was a little curious whether he would get over that 1% mark, and he did by a bit. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if and when the Liberals put out more detailed accounting because all we have right now are the points rather than the raw votes by constituency. So we don't know where any of these candidates actually yeah, picked so, up their support. Yeah. That means, yeah, in theory, Stan Sipos could have just swept one riding and picked up four points somewhere else. We don't know. Seems we, unlikely. Uh, <laughs> seems unlikely, but without the the data, it's a little harder to say. Maryfield um, sitting MLA got 3.2%. Yeah. So we were discussing this in the Slack a bit, but. The the real, I think, question mark with Renee Merrifield was who was the Renee Merrifield voter? We, most of the other candidates at least had a story they were going with, a potential coalition. Gavin Dew, he was the young urbanite father. You can see the coalition he could potentially, he was trying to assemble there, particularly with younger members of the party, more urban members of the party, and with the, the writing weighted points. There's a certain amount of sense in that because that is where a lot of the the votes would be, not necessarily in the the very strong liberal areas that have probably a lot more members per riding 
in the interior. Same with same with Ellis Ross, Kevin Fault. Like you could see where all of those people at least had a coalition they were working with and a theory of the the case on their electoral path to victory. Renee Merrifield, it was always vague what that was, and unsurprisingly, that vagueness manifested in not very many votes. Is there a large anti-science contingent in the BC Liberal base? <laughs> Maybe that was large. It. No, I mean you, you should. I'm sure you could <laughs> find some it's people. Three point two percent. I'm being really mean right now. So yeah, Maryfield. Embarrassing result for a sitting MLA. So she was beat by Litwin and Dew, neither of whom are elected, right? Litwin came out of nowhere. He's been in the Vancouver Chamber of Commerce, I believe. Gavin Dew. Yeah, I think it was PC Chamber, not Vancouver. Okay. And Gavin Dew has you know, been around political circles in Metro Van for quite a while now. And Michael Lee and Ellis Ross sitting MLAs. And like you said, yeah, I, so- yeah go ahead. So yeah, Gavin Dew got uh, 5.4%, Val Litwin 5.8%, Michael Lee 10.3%, Ellis Ross uh, second place at 267 and well, Kevin Falcon we already mentioned with his pretty commanding 47% on yeah. the first round. Ellis was able to grow his vote share to 33.6%. Over it, and it seems like just staring at these numbers, he grew the most of all of the non Kevin Falcon <laughs> candidates, but it was nowhere near enough. So he was the like alternate, like people's second choice for most of them, I think. When you start at 47% in this kind of rank ballot situation, you're going to get there. And I think, unlike when Andrew Wilkinson won in the last race, where it took six or seven ballots, whatever it was. This is a decisive victory. It just, like you said, it took a while because there were a lot of candidates, many of whom didn't have many votes to move. So we just had to move them. And here's where a delegated convention would be great because that would have taken one round because everyone would have looked at that and just conceded. Instead, we got an hour of just waiting for results to trickle out. But let's talk about who Kevin Falcon is because he's the new leader. He's going to be sitting or i think he's been sitting in the back of the chamber because as a former mla he has the right to uh, sit in the legislature on the floor but not in one of the front seats so he sits you in can't participate in debates yeah so he can be in the chamber as just the general that former mlas have but he can't actually do anything while he's there he sits in a chair in the corner effectively so kevin I, falcon I, 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 I appreciate the sense of wanting to go to Victoria and show the flage, so to speak. But you do have to wonder if it wouldn't just be more effective to let Shirley Bond continue to run things there and actually get out there, start campaigning for the by-election. He's going to be running in Vancouver, Chilchenna, because Andrew Wilkinson's graciously decided to step down. Which was a pretty uh, big let- announcement. That was an unknown yeah, there, I think there were questions of whether you'd have someone in the safer interior seats step aside. Ben but, Stewart uh, again. <laughs> might as well make it a tradition at this point. But no, that's not what happened there. But yeah, you think he'd be trying to out trying to rebuild the party more than being in Victoria doing that stuff. So 
uh, we'll, we'll see on that. Uh, good news is this isn't going to be a particularly long, drawn-out process to get him into the ledge because it's going to be a six-month timeline starting from when say, uh, Andrew... <laughs> the the MVP yeah, we actually, can we are, drag this it is Andrew, out. This is Andrew Wilkinson we're talking about. We, are we sure he actually resigned and didn't just say he was going to resign and then wait three months to file the paperwork? Oh, and then once he actually does, the NDP can decide when to officially call that by-election. And I think they have Within six, a six months. Month period. Yeah. All right. Kevin Falcon, he's been involved in free market enterprisey stuff for a long time. He was in the Young Socreds at SFU in the 1980s, apparently at the same time as Christy Clark. Wikipedia tells me he helped on Doug McCallum's first campaign in Surrey in 1996. Doug McCallum, you'll note, is the current mayor of Surrey because everything is cyclical in BC politics, it turns out now. After being involved in that, Falcon was pretty feeling good about his competency, so he started a communications consultancy. And he would lead the total recall campaign against NDP MLAs in 1999. He would go on to be elected in Surrey Cloverdale as MLA in 2001, 05, and 09. He was initially appointed Minister of State for Deregulation, the Red Tape Reduction Minister. He would be moved to transportation in January 2009 and in June of that year over to health. He would run for leadership of the BC Liberals following Gordon Campbell's resignation in 2010. The leadership race was in 2011. He narrowly lost 52 to 48% to Christy Clark in the third round. She would name him Minister of Finance and Deputy Premier, but he would decide not to run in 2013 after his second daughter was born because parenting is a lot of work and I can respect that decision. In his intervening years, he was the executive VP of Anthem Capital and he sat on a number of nonprofit boards like the Canuck Place Foundation, Lionsgate Hospital Foundation, uh, and others. So, stayed active, but been less political for a number of years. He didn't run in the last leadership race, saying his kids were still too young, I think, and he wasn't as interested at that point. But this time, he stepped up, he put out the campaign, and it seems like he just ran the best machine, is what I think it really came down to. He signed up the people he needed to win. Well, not just the signed he up needed the people- to win. I just signed up the people he needed to win. He very early on went out of his way to basically try and lock down as many of the kind of staff volunteer people in the Liberal Party into his team on that, which was uh, probably a, a significant contribution to his eventual win. Yeah, and so where it was like a technically clean victory, I don't think it was a particularly inspiring one. I went back through his website and tried to figure out what his ideas for the province actually were and clicking on his vision statement it's just things like we should be a great province again we should have jobs the economy is important we should have jobs again the environment is good i know like he did talk about a couple specific things when pressed he was one who's in favor of considering a name change for the party uh, I think he spoke in favor of SkyTrain expansion, but... Yeah, he did, I think, a month or two before the vote, put out a video touting his record on building the candle line and such, and wanting to continue the work of building out the region SkyTrain and transit infrastructure. That's honestly the only thing that really sticks in mind, and 
that's because three people DM'd it to me, made sure I saw that. But in terms of, yeah, this was in terms of broad policy goals. This is not a case of a leadership candidate putting out a 10, 20 page platform of what they would do if they were premier. No, this is someone who much- says we need bold, visionary ideas. And I'll tell you what those are when we pull on them. Okay. Uh, the, the listeners don't need to hear me uh, repeat my complaints about the the lack of bold visionary ideas when saying we need bold visionary ideas in the uh, the leadership race. It was something all of the candidates were guilty of. If we're going to talk about bold visionary ideas, should we pivot to the throne speech? <laughs> it, that is the same level of boldness as the ideas laid out in uh, Falcon's manifesto or lack thereof. But before we do, I, I think it is kind of interesting to think about what does this actually mean for the likelihood the BC Liberals or, I don't know, the BC Party, whatever they decide to change their name to, on that. What are their election prospects under Falcon? The NDP has already launched salvo after salvo of this is the same old, this is the guy who was part of the 16 years. He was just trying to really tie him to his legacy of being involved in the Christy Clark and Gordon Campbell governments of austerity and cutting and, you know, pinning him to challenges ICBC faced. Yeah, they, uh, and that might, they hadn't even let Shirley Bond finish reading the, the announcement before they hit send on a dozen press releases and tweets on that. So, He's going to have to struggle to get over that, to try to paint yourself as a new leader of a refreshed party with a real bold vision for the province while you still have the baggage. This was part of the problem for Andrew Wilkinson. Not, I think Calvin Falcon probably has a, a bigger issue with that than Wilkinson did because he was deeper involved in it, although Wilkinson was more recently involved. so Yeah, I, I think the... The other difference is there's just going to be four more years distance between them. And as the liberals found out in 2017, you didn't only go back to the well of look how terrible the last government was so many times before it loses effectiveness. The, the fact that John Horgan was involved with the BC NDP during some not great moments in the 90s didn't really matter to voters that much. And I'm not sure if we're going to be quite that far out come next election, but we're definitely getting into that time frame where the memories are going to be much more about what the NDP's done than what happened at that point. Probably, would that be? He left politics, what, 2011, 12? Uh, that? Yeah, 2013. So we're looking at over a decade since he was in politics at that point. It's going to be a bit different. I think the big challenge is just what is the point of the BC Liberal Party anymore other than to just not be the NDP? And maybe that'll be enough in four years or in eight years. Maybe that'll be enough in two years or in six years. But like he's got to come forward with something strong, right? What is the new and how do you pivot that party? Because 
the province has changed quite a bit. We have 5 million people now who look a lot different than the province did in the 2000s or in the Socred era. And the values, I think, of this province are shifting, especially as COVID has challenged our conceptions of what we need from government. And so but not there only is that, a lot of opportunity for the NDP to hold on as long as they can keep themselves fresh too. Yeah, the challenges are just different now than they were 20 years ago. And I'm not sure Kevin Falcon's really updated himself accordingly. And I think this is a complaint you could probably level against the broader center right in the country on that. But the deficit just isn't the deal it used to be. And balancing the budget is something that, yeah, it's good, but it's not going to be the sort of thing that has the same ability to get people out to the polls and motivate them the way it, and be a, just a effective partisan talking point as it used to be. And I'm not sure Tim Fulton realizes that to see was already out in the past week talking about the budget as something and the deficit as something to really hammer home on for the liberals. And it just, it just strikes me as not reading the room on where the province is on this stuff. If you want to be effective as a opposition leader, you need to be taking the government to task on things like affordability, which they haven't done that effectively. And just internally, he needs to, you know, revamp the party's fundraising because they haven't figured out how to survive in the modern uh, new set of rules we face. He needs to get members excited. Like, it all comes together, but there's just a lot of internal functions that seem atrophied and struggling. So, his work's cut out for him. Let's jump to the throne speech you've probably forgotten about on Tuesday afternoon. Or, or more likely, didn't even notice it was happening, because it was pretty low-key in terms of both the coverage and the kind of attempts to draw attention to it from the government. Yep, yep. So this is the second throne speech of a majority government's mandate. This is year two. There's, it's a second term of a second term. There's rarely going to be a lot of big surprises in that kind of throne speech. It's more going to be like what we saw. Here's the things we're still working on. Here's some of the things that will come in this year that relate to what we promised. Not much is going to change. And that's what we got. Like the specifics that are coming this year, minimum wage will be tied to inflation. I thought that was already the case, but I guess they will pass a law to change that. They will bring in the anti-racism data legislation they've been talking about for a while, and they will split the Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development into two. So there is a land and resource ministry, which it sounds like would probably go to Nathan Cullen because he was made Minister of State of that mouthful of a ministry. Uh, Oh, and childcare is moving to the Ministry of Education. We'll get a cooling off period for home buyers, which is one of those things that's probably reasonable, but it's going to do very little to help home buyers or potential home buyers and people looking for homes. 
and then we'll get a budget soon enough, which will be hopefully a little more interesting. And then a lot of back padding as the average throne speech has a decent amount of, and this was above average. What's even the point? <laughs> throne speeches have their, their usefulness as in addition to being a confidence vote, which let's face it is not really at question here. It is good to have governments periodically lay out their plans for the upcoming legislative session, kind of give state of the province address almost in that sort of thing. But yeah, these aren't huge affairs most of the time and particularly middle of a government's tenure in their second uh, term, just not going to be that exciting. Yeah, and it feels like they're getting less specific. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I haven't... Your cat maybe. really wants more specific throne speeches. I don't know. Maybe I haven't read enough of the older throne speeches from the Harper and Cretchen years. But like the modern ones are very high on the back padding and rhetoric. Like I at least remember Harper introducing a pledge to get rid of the penny. And I think in that th same throne speech, he also wanted to like make O Canada modernized. And then his base revolted and he dropped that pledge immediately. But I thought that was funny. At least I remember that. There's nothing funny or interesting in here. It's just, you know, the government continues Royal BC Museum is still being modernized. But there was some potentially possibly interesting exchanges happening in the house. Yes. So as people may remember, the NDP brought in some FOI legislation that had a little bit of controversy attached to it, particularly a new filing fee for FOIs. During the debate, the minister responsible for this, Lisa Baer, told the House that no decision had been set and that wouldn't happen until after the bill become law. They had a chance to do everything needed to work through all the particulars of what's the appropriate FOI fee, etc., Turns out that may not have been entirely truthful, and that's what Adam Olson is alleging in a point of privilege, I believe, on this one. And that is specifically because within hours of the legislation receiving royal assent, the lieutenant governor and council had issued a decision on what the FOI fee was going to be, which which means the claim by the minister that no decision has been made strikes one as a little fanciful, given how quickly one seemed to have been made as soon as the legislation was in place. There was simply not time to do all of the work between when it received royal assent and when the order in council was signed. Yeah, we'll post a link to Adam Olson's blog, which includes his full transcript in the show notes. But he outlines on November 1st, November 3rd, and later 
dates that Minister Baer said the potential fee had not been decided upon. This includes up until November 25th, which is when it received royal assent. And very shortly after, like you said, the amount of the fee, the $10 was announced. And so the question really just comes down to, is did she lie? Did she lie in Parliament? Because that is bad. We don't know what the Speaker's going to decide. He'll decide next week, and we'll try and let you know what he finds out. I like this story a lot because it shows Olsen and the BC Greens like having a deep understanding both of how the legislature works and the tools and levers at their disposal, and also still bringing back points that they were being effective on in the fall. Like we talked about this bill going through a few times and the critiques around it, and the NDP just still pushed it forward without really standing up much to defend it. So now the question is going to be, does this bring it back into the public realm? Because this is, I think, an effective way to bring it up. It's also pretty niche and wonky, and I don't know how well it will get to the get out there beyond nerds like us and a couple people who follow the legislature pretty closely. But if the, if the speaker rules against the minister, that will be yeah, that'll definitely get get some attention for sure. I think probably outside just the very niche people who watch the ledge, it'll definitely get play. And not only that, it's will be uh, fodder for the next election campaign, the way governments being held in, minority governments being held in contempt of parliament have been election fodder in the subsequent elections. Hasn't usually helped the opposition, though, (laughs) in recent memory. But maybe even within the NDP's own ranks, it'll start to raise questions and it could result in a cabinet shuffle. Well, not only that, it's the thing that starts to take the shine off of a government. For the most part, the NDP more or less managed to avoid scandals or having to make unpopular decisions that really put them at odds with where BC is, forcing through this FOI change notwithstanding. But it's this, the more these little things add up, the more that... You know, People get tired of it and start to see the government in power losing their way, focusing more on political games and, and not doing the right thing than you know delivering for British Columbians. And I think we're a long way before BC switches to seeing the NDP that way. But there will come a day where that happens, and this is a step towards that day. Moving from the provincial capital to the federal one, the situation in Ottawa remains bad. A giant mess. It is starting to seem like Ottawa is slowly getting restored. I saw the uh, yesterday that Bain Street was clear for the first time in two and a half weeks. So slowly moving that direction but nevertheless that's still absurd that nearly three weeks into this order had not been effectively restored in ottawa on the other hand it's also spilling out 
elsewhere across the country as we're seeing major border crossings closed and seriously closed, including to the point where the Ambassador Bridge blockade has meant that several auto plants have had to take days off because they couldn't get the parts they need. Yeah, so there the, the Ambassador Bridge going around. For those who don't know, is the uh, bridge that uh, goes north from Windsor to Detroit, and that is the busiest border crossing in terms of trade on the entire U.S.-Canadian border. About $417 million of goods cross that bridge every day. So it is a big deal when it is closed. It's the the bridge that basically links the Ontario audio the Ontario auto industry with the Detroit auto industry and it is a big problem when that gets closed beyond just the direct trade impacts it's not good for governments to lose control of their ability to operate their borders not generally there have also been some allegations of uh, fake 911 calls overwhelming Ottawa police. MP in Nova Scotia alleges that he and several other MPs out there have been receiving suspicious packages with uh, powder in them. Like, it's getting to the point where it's hard to know what are just like weird things happening and what is like part of an organized effort to create chaos and terror in this country. And it seems it's taking forever to deal with it. Although by the time you're listening to this, Ontario may be doing something as they have announced that there are going to be, well, or they've at least leaked that there are going to be emergency measures invoked tomorrow. Yeah, so the blockade started on Monday. It is now Thursday evening when we were recording this, and... They're taking uh, response lessons from BC government is where you're going. I wasn't actually done for not BC government, but yeah, it's the same sort of who's to say this giant problem is actually a problem. We'll hope it sorts itself out before we have to do anything like govern or enact emergency measures. I, I made the analogy, but I'm also going to walk it back and defend Doug Ford a tiny bit in that I would hope governments do not invoke the Emergencies Act or relative similar levels of that every time there is a protest even if it hits a major border crossing like as soon as the protest starts no that is not the time that it's a full-fledged emergency yeah a a flood is is clearly an emergency though (laughs) yes where i think this does raise the question a little more on whether or not they should have invoked it earlier is this is week three of of all of this Ottawa is not exactly doing great, though it does seem to be trending in a slightly better direction than it was a a week ago. But this should never have gotten to this point because it should never have been a four-day blockade at the most important border crossing in the country or a a two-and-a-half, nearly three-week bout of lawlessness and rowdiness in the nation's capital and that i think is where the failures really lie is that it was pretty like 
it was obvious to anyone watching that there was a whole lot of unlawful activity going on, and one would hope that the people whose job it is to enforce laws and stop unlawful activity when it's happening would be out there doing that stuff and putting a stop to that. And that's uh, not what's happened. Uh, one would have hoped that, okay, we're illegally blocking a major international border would just be the sort of thing where the police would just show up, get the people out of there, whether or not they have to arrest them in the process or just tell them to dis or just threaten them with arrest and tell them to disperse. If they're not. Regardless of that, it's the sort of thing that should have been resolved in an afternoon at the most. Yet here we are four days later it's now sparked an international incident as the White House had to call up the Prime Minister and basically go, what the hell's going on here? We're here to give you help if you need it, but can you seriously just do it yourself and invoke your own federal powers on that? The, the CBC report suggests that the White House encouraged the Canadian government to enact their own federal powers in this case. It's a mess. It's embarrassing that that seemed to have been the thing that kicked everything into gear tonight. And it's... yeah, it, it's not good when law enforcement doesn't do the law enforcing. Yeah, it's really fun to watch the the state fail f at every level, <laughs> like every aspect of how the state should actually the courts are doing okay. It seems like they granted the injunction to stop the horn honking. They granted an injunction to, in theory, stop the funds from the Christian far-right site that's fundraising in the U.S., although it sounds like those might still go through because they don't care. Um, but yeah, beyond the courts, the, on, the Ottawa police had ample opportunity to know what was coming because these people posted it on their websites and we're pretty damn clear. And when far right uh, groups say they are doing things, you take it seriously, I guess, unless you're the police. Or, or actually, let, let me just, uh, yes, but let's just make that an even more general statement. When people indicate an intention to occupy a capital or blockade critical infrastructure, you're supposed to take it seriously. You have the police failing. The city of Ottawa seems paralyzed, although the mayor did invoke their local state of emergency, but then he also argued and asked Trudeau to come and just meet these people halfway, which I don't know how you meet people who think you should effectively be deposed halfway. I guess I'll fire half my cabinet and only be half a prime minister now. The province of Ontario has not done anything, and the federal government has had some committee meetings. and had Yeah, the, the only people who actually seem to have done a half-decent job at this is the Toronto police last week seemed to have watched what was happening in Ottawa and made sure when the local truckers showed up that it was going to be as undisruptive as possible. Yeah, and, and the situation downtown, here. Yeah, they closed a bunch of downtown streets in Toronto and limited access to, to some of that to make sure that wouldn't happen. Yeah, when the sympathy protests were coming, it seemed like many of the other provinces were fairly prepared. BC managed it both with the people of Vancouver 
stopping these trucks on their bikes. And then because they're on bikes, they could move to intercept the trucks as they were trying to find a different route. And the best part is when all the trucks ended up on Terminal Ave and that's kettled themselves. So they couldn't get out and had to back up down the road, which is just funny. Quebec seems to have managed to stop any major disruptions from happening and same with Atlantic Canada. Alberta's had trouble because they seem to not care that Coote's border crossing was blocked for a number of days or weeks. It may even still be. Um, and Manitoba seems to be having trouble at their border as well. So maybe it uh, says something about also the conservative the, uh, governments of those provinces at this point. But the, what's it, I believe it's the Peace Bridge between Fort Erie and Buffalo, New York, outside of Tuamvoyant's way earlier today. I have not heard what the latest on that is as we're recording. But yeah, it, it's a bad situation. And I don't want to talk forever about this because there's so much content out there about this. But like one of the big things that's highlighted on many of the left-wing analysis I listen to have been like the longer this occupation lasts in Ottawa, the longer and the more time these groups have to gel and strategize and uh, radicalize more people. And that creates even further problems down the road. The protest is fine and good. And I have no problem with, I don't like it, but I have no problem with them having been allowed to get out of their trucks, walk to the Capitol, fly their flags for a while, even if they blocked a street for half a day. Like, it's annoying, but that's what protest is supposed to be. This goes beyond that, obviously. And we it's been said many a times, but we know what would have happened if this protest was indigenous-led or was environmental or many other causes, because we've seen it. The police Although stop I it and are often quite violent and aggressive in it. Although that hasn't always been the case. You pointed to what the, the left's been talking about. One thing I have seen commented on quite a bit from more kind of, well, center, right, the, the moderate right, is that this is not the first time blockades have persisted for quite a while and there hasn't been enforcement action against them the the 2020 rail blockades went for about a, uh, a three-month period from january to march and you could you can certainly see where these protesters got the idea that it was not going to be the sort of thing where they would face an immediate crackdown should they do it except the rcmp did enforce injunctions in those cases, in it, many those, different places. They took a long time to clear. the. It, it was a three-month period there, and there was at least a full month of that where Via Rail had to close down their entire Ontario, or their main Ontario rail service, because it the there were too many blockades. Anyway, the, the point's not to relitigate 2020, it's to basically say that the, these are long-running issues that are, are particularly clear now, but has generally been a challenge to have blockade or have protests that cross the line into clearly unlawful activity be rapidly dealt with before injunctions had to be gotten via the courts. And it's good. The various people have availed themselves of the options to, to get injunctions, whether it's the Ottawans with the, the horn injunction or likewise, but a lot of these things pretty clearly break existing 
laws on the books, and you you shouldn't necessarily have to go to court for the police to do their job on these matters. It's almost like the police are sympathetic to the cause. There was a nice piece in CBC that actually looked at who many of the people involved are, and they find there are a number of ex-military and ex-RCMP officers involved in the protests, which suggests that they understood the strategies that might have been used against them. And in many ways, they were actually surprised that none were. Anyway, it's quite depressing. One person... I don't even... Okay. Nevertheless, the protesters themselves aren't very popular with Canadians, and follow-up pollsters seem to suggest opinion is moving against them. That said, the broad question of how is the pandemic going seems to be shaking up the political class as a couple liberal MPs broke ranks, it's been described, and said they are not so sure about how the Trudeau government has handled this and are wondering when all these restrictions will end. Like They didn't specifically say what should change or when it should change, but they're tired, it sounds like. Notably, this is Quebec MP Joel Lightbound, and he was later uh, supported by fellow Quebec Liberal MP Yves Robillard. For his comments, Lightbound resigned as the chair of the Quebec Liberal Caucus, and he remains in the Liberal Party, at least. It's not super great that a fairly light rebuff of some policies and basically a hey guys we get some clarification on this and at least a clearer plan on what the exit strategy is which as we've been talking about for quite a while on the podcast and Stuart brought up about a month ago when he uh, guest hosted here it is something governments haven't been particularly clear on so those are fair comments I think it's not super great that that not even a major dissent or anything gets met with demotions for MPs. So I read Lightbound's full remarks, and they're transcribed in the National Post. I think they're worth reading because they're interesting. The first half kind of focuses on anecdotes and emails he's been getting, which are various people who are angry at the restrictions. Most of the restrictions they describe, though, seem to be provincial, like I can't go to the restaurant or I'm worried about, I'm frustrated by having to take my kids out and back and forth from school and that kind of stuff, which I get people don't always know the distinctions of government. And so they complain to who, whichever politician's name they know. And so MPs will get that. He then goes on to talk about the way we should be looking forward and how a number of other countries such as Ireland, Sweden, Norway, Czech Republic, Brazil, blah, 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 are moving to reduce restrictions despite having lower vaccination rates than Canada. And then he lays out what he wants to see, like you said, a roadmap for where we should be going, explanations for including the science behind why decisions are being made. This is something I think most levels of government, especially BC and others, have failed to provide. He wants to see the federal government negotiate with the provinces over Canada health transfers. That's music to John Horgan's ears because he and the other premiers want to see the 
federal government step up again to pay 50% of the healthcare costs. Something okay, that really I, I'm, going on. Well, yeah, that's a perennial uh, complaint of provincial premiers. In fact, I think the collective noun for a group of provincial premiers is a funding request. But to be fair to Lightbound's comments here, he points out that the government, the federal government's stance is that they're not going to negotiate until the pandemic's over. But it's healthcare money, which you think they would need during a healthcare crisis. And finally, I think this is where he potentially angered his caucus the most, or at least the leadership is. He says, it's time to stop dividing Canadians. I can't help but notice with regret that both the tone and the policies of my government changed drastically on the eve of the last election campaign. He basically accuses his party and the leadership of politicizing vaccinations, of politicizing the pandemic, which I think is true. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely true. (laughs) And should instead be trying to pivot to a more unifying language. And I think there's value in that. But some of those may be the kind of remarks you should be expressing behind in caucus, the like full-throated criticism of your government's tone. There, there have been rebels in the Liberal caucus. Nathaniel Earthen Smith comes to mind, and he's not like a strong rebel, but he's more like a kind of MP who just has a lot of interests that don't always 100% mesh with his party, but they don't undermine it. So he's allowed to be a little more loose. I think chair of a party br- branch, I don't, I don't know so, how much of a demotion it is. It's, yeah. Yeah. Caucus chair, like, I've seen a few people trying to analogize it to cabinet solidarity, which is the principle that in our system, cabinet speaks with one voice. And regardless of the personal disagreements any particular cabinet minister may have, once the decision's been made in cabinet, they, they all go out there and support it. Caucus chair of a provincial caucus is not quite that, and it doesn't have the same functions or the the same position within the kind of, within the executive branch, and how those interact are are just different. So I, I don't think it's a great analogy. No, but I guess we'll see what other rumblings come out of the Liberal Party. I do find it interesting, though, that the last criticism of Trudeau came from a number of women, notably Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, and rather than a slight demotion of a not meaningless title, but they were expelled from the party. So, yeah, they were treated quite differently. That, that was not a, a great moment for Trudeau or the Liberal Party. I, I will point out that in that case, that those were some fairly serious allegations of, at the very least, unethical behavior, and at the worst, kind of illegal or definitely against the spirit of the law, at at the very least, in that case. And it is a significantly more serious charge they laid against their fellow party members. Now, I happen to think that was that you probably shouldn't kick people out of caucus for or the party for bringing to light an attempt to interfere with a criminal prosecution. But this clearly does not raise to that level of inter-party conflict. 
So this has been politically a mess, and ultimately I think what kind of connects all the dots in terms of the governments and the police, and basically everyone's response to the situation is just a pretty consistent failure of leadership, failure of institutions from top to bottom on this. It is not good that the prime minister and the premier of the largest province in the country where all this is happening basically spent two weeks trying to pretend this wasn't happening and that it was really the other person's job. The chief of police of Ontario of chief of police of Ottawa more or less seems to have been hoping someone else would come in and clean it all up and just altogether there just does not seem to have been an adult in the in any of these rooms to put aside the pure political instincts to not take this on and potentially deal with any of the blowback and in instead just do the fucking right thing and actually lead and do the job and that's i think been the problem through all of this is that the leadership of the country and the provinces are far more interested in the titles and the stats and everything that at, that comes with the job of being prime minister or premier and are a lot less interested in the actual responsibilities and duties of the various offices and it's a bad situation that I'm not sure how we change and get out to like Certainly doesn't seem like there's a good answer to that coming out of any of the opposition parties on there, but there are some very serious cultural problems with how all parties, the the entire political establishment from the entire spectrum deals with these things. And it's just, I think, reflects a culture that does not treat serious problems as as serious when they are, and is unwilling to take on the the full responsibilities that their position entails. And ultimately, I don't think all of the, the leaders in the country have basically shown themselves not to be taught out for the jobs they're in. I don't know. Maybe that's why Mark Carney felt the need to, to weigh in several days before the prime minister said anything on the matter. Of any real note, he, he penned an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, basically calling for, well, peace, order, and good government, and uh, someone to do something. Yeah, someone to do something. It, it, it's it's weird that the former governor of the Bank of Canada is the one putting these calls out. It's not if he's going to be the but, next leader of the Liberal Party. Yeah. But. but there was a there's a serious leadership vacuum just across the board in Canada. For the opposition parties, the NDP have made a couple different pivots. Their first thing was weird. They bragged about how they introduced a bill to ban specific hate symbols in Canada, namely the swastika and Confederate flag, which this was in the first days after the occupation started, where those were the highlights that everyone was looking gawking at. And I'm not generally a ban symbols kind of person, but also I think this is probably narrowly targeted if it's just the swastika and confederate flag and those don't necessarily have 
value in being displayed outside of maybe an academic or educational context. Whatever, it's not going to solve this problem, though. Uh, they requested an emergency debate, which is something parliamentarians do so that they can complain and have their peace. And more recently, they've called for an investigation into the foreign funding of the protest, both through another data mining petition, but also they asked for the ambassador of the US to be dragged before the Foreign Affairs Committee to testify about his knowledge and what they would do about American funding, which I think CTV had a little piece looking at how much of the money going into some of these fundraisers was American. It's hard to know, but they did find a significant amount um, yeah, based so on what they were able to track. Yeah. Normally, I think it's a little bit much calling the ambassador in to berate them on this stuff, but the attorney general of Texas weighed in after GoFundMe decided to suspend their stuff. So, like, they, various bits of the U.S. of uh, governments in the U.S. are at least not entirely staying out of this. And, and that's worth looking into and making our displeasure known. Maybe when the White House was calling Justin Trudeau, he could have raised that. I don't think it's the Democrats doing it, but they do have the yeah, White the, House the, right the now. So they could is be. definitely not Democrat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On the conservative side, they have finally decided the blocking of major economic routes is a bad thing. Took them a while. Yeah, th this has just been utterly disgraceful on the, the Conservative Party's part. And uh, you had MPs like Michael Chong out there from the start calling this what it was and, and demanding a turn to law and order in the, the Capitol. But the interim leader and many of the more prominent members were pretty happy to support this stuff. And it just... Man, the Conservatives used to be the party of law and order, and those are important things in a country that is ruled by laws and not the, the whims of whoever can uh, find a bunch of trucks to park in an inconvenient spot, and it has just been a mess to see them, and disappointed to see them abandon that at the moment for brief Sorry, it's been disappointing to see. Sorry, got that. It's been disappointing to see them just throw that all away for a momentary bit of political convenience. Meanwhile, today, a uh, man who is running to be Prime Minister of Canada, and we can come back to that. Pierre Polyev sent. I'm just looking at his Twitter to see what he'd said. Sent an open letter to the Prime Minister, calling for him to give Canadians back control of their lives, specifically. We should end all federal vaccine mandates, encourage an end to provincial mandates, and state clearly there will be no taxes on the unvaccinated. So that is the focus uh, of that leadership candidate at this moment in time, which is not surprising, but it is a dark point. So yes, Pierre Polyev has officially entered the Conservative Party leadership race. He didn't even wait for the knives to come out of Aaron O'Toole's back or to dry off before he announced he is his real jackalate in energy running for prime minister. He's got 19 members of parliament and caucus members already endorsing him, a, a few other notable people, including John Baird, former MP, who some considered might be running. So he's really trying to get out there fast and furious to, I don't know, dissuade all the other challengers. 
We'll talk lots about Pierre, I'm sure. Definitely. This will not be the the last time he comes up. At the same time, the Candace Bergen leadership has announced a change in policy and the conservatives are no longer supporting carbon pricing, just abandoning the pivot that Aaron O'Toole made without official blessing, although I think caucus would have had to sign off on the platform, or at least not oppose it, because they ran on it. There was that rather famous moment last year where the uh, party convention ended up voting against a proposal to accept carbon pricing or stop or, or drop the opposition to carbon pricing from the party policy that that went over not very well ended up get going down in flames and you and i both think that carbon pricing is a, a good policy and i think we want to see a general cross-party consensus on there that said o'toole was very much going out well ahead of where the rest of the party was and as as much as I think we both disagree with this decision. There is arguably more democratic legitimacy for the interim leader to drop it than for O'Toole to have brought it in the first place. Bergen will leave it up to leadership contenders to make their pitch for or against it. But yeah. I'm going to just throw this out there that there will be zero going for it. They should. It's the, it is the, in theory, the conservative way to approach this, but that battle seems to have been lost a long time ago. I think we've gone long enough for this week. Just remember people as Twitter has notified everyone this afternoon, Justin Trudeau is the son of former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and Margaret Trudeau. Breaking news, he's not Fidel Castro's bastard, unfortunately. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>